Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi there, and welcome again to the Explaining History podcast. And uh, it's been a while since we've done a book review, and I've got something with me that I particularly wanted to talk about for a while. Uh, fortunately, the opportunity hadn't kind of presented itself a bit, but now here we go. It is um, a memoir. Not so much a memoir as one of these kind of psychogeographies um, that's uh, often quite uh, quite popular. Um, Babushka's Journey, uh, The Dark Road to Stalin's Wartime Camps uh, by Marcel Kruger. Um, the book is the story of Marcel Kruger's grandmother, Cecile, uh, an East Prussian woman in 1945 who, like uh, many thousands of uh, men and women uh, like her, was spirited away on uh, trucks and trains eastwards uh, beyond the Ural Mountains for years of slave labour by way of uh, Stalin's notions of restorative justice. Um, The the book is is one of a a kind of a number of... um, uh, interesting sort of memoirs and journeys into the the Russian past, which um, is kind of contemporary um, travelogue um, and also um, narrative, uh, in historical narrative. Uh, Catherine Merrydale's Lenin on the Train, for example, or Rachel Polonsky's Molotov's Magic Lantern are two uh, very kind of uh, similar sort of um, historical processes here. And it makes a, a kind of a nice change sometimes from a, a straight historical text. Um, and it is uh, the way of the author kind of telling the story in a slightly different way. Um, this is, is rather like a kind of a detective journey, retracing the, the, the steps of um, Babushka, um, Cecile. And it uh, also taps into one of these really fraught yet interesting areas of historical memory. 
Um, the the past is obviously hotly contested, and all we have of it really is um, shared and collective memory. And this is a memory so laden with trauma. Um, the end of the Second World War was a process of endless rounds of brutalization for Russians, Germans, Poles, and countless other nationalities in what Timothy Snyder refers to as the bloodlands, but that um, uh, that territory between Berlin and Moscow, which has seen so much devastation in the 20th century. If you're a listener to this podcast, you'll know that um, I have I've talked about uh, Gulag memoirs before. Obviously, uh, Solzhenitsyn, who was uh, sent to the Gulag at uh, roughly uh, the same time, is the uh, kind of founding figure in, in Gulag uh, memoirs. Uh, but there have been various others, uh, slightly less known titles come to light from uh, time to time. And as far as it goes... Um, the uh, the ability of historians to penetrate the uh, the idea of the gulag is a lot more lot more limited than our understanding of the the Nazi camp system and particularly the obviously the Nazi death camps. Um, gulag memoirs are far more intermittent and and therefore extremely intriguing, um, often very, very dark and traumatic uh, recollections, but also real snapshots into the inner workings and the kind of the moral workings of the camp system. So without further ado, let's dive into it. Um, We're going to look at a period of Silly's journey um, beginning in um, February 1945. Um, in February 1945, there are no trucks for Silly and the others. They walked the 60 miles, 60 kilometres to Heilsberg, which is their next destination. Not that anyone tells the prisoners where they're going. They just plough on through snow and mud. They pass the wrecks of carts and sleighs and wagons as well as corpses, some pressed into the ground by tank tracks and the wheels of trucks like hedgehogs run over by cars. This is what Silly sees. The remnants of a desperate flight smashed wardrobes and Sunday clothes strewn across muddy country lanes, the frozen faces of the dead. Most inhabitants of East Prussia tried to flee as soon as the Russians fired the first shots. Many people had finalised their escape plans in October 1944, when the Red Army first invaded. These plans, however, had to be made in secret, despite the rapid advances of the Red Army. German authorities, especially Gauleiter Erich Koch, Uh, forbade leaving one's place of residence without a permit. The 2.5 million inhabitants of East Prussia were left in these areas until fighting overwhelmed them. When the German authorities finally gave people the order to leave, there was hardly any transport left. uh, Most people fled in groups made up of people from the same village or farm, collecting their belongings on carriages and carts drawn by oxen and farm horses, with crude structures on the wagons made from old planks, carpets and canvas pieces to protect the pregnant women and small children inside. Not one was able to take everything they owned. And what should they pack? Uh, what should one pack anyone? Anyway, a cupboard, books, food. Many tried to take as much as possible. And the fleeing refugees must have looked like a biblical exodus. Some may have expected to return, especially when they remembered the brief Russian occupation of East Prussia in 1914, 
which is one of the reasons my great-grandmother decided to stay on the, at the farm with Celia and Monica. She was convinced that the Russians would leave again soon. But many must have felt that this was it. Either the refugees would make it to the West with their lives and belongings, or they would perish. The Wehrmacht had treated the Soviet Union too badly, too many lives had been extinguished, and too much land destroyed to allow any remorse on the side of the invading Red Army. And any remorse they may still have felt was finally extinguished by propaganda from both Berlin and Moscow. Flee or perish, no other options existed in the minds of most refugees. Slowly the crude treks, named after the Boer migrations in, the south, in South Africa in the 19th century, made their way west. Trying to escape the advance of the Red Army by inching away via already crowded country lanes. They had few choices, either head west and try to reach the former Polish corridor and Danzig across the Vistula, or head north and try the frozen lagoon, the Frischhaf, um, beyond which was a narrow sandy spit called the Frischneerung. The Neerung would lay, lead the refugees to Gutenhafen uh, or Danzig, and to another escape route by sea. The last option, the most promising as long as trains were running, was to go northeast towards the capital of East Prussia, Königsberg, and its harbour Pillau, which and escape across the Baltic Sea. In the event, whichever route they took, most of the treks were overtaken by the Red Army, which in some cases crashed through the refugee columns with their T-34 tanks. All the while, Silly was moving in the other direction. After a day of marching, the prisoners reached old, the old Prussian settlement of Heilsberg, a once thriving town of 15,000 inhabitants that was now a smouldering heap of ruins. Like Allenstein, it was captured by the Red Army without a fight, but uncontrolled fire started a few days later destroyed half the town. The column is split up into smaller groups, and Silly, Erika, and, the other, and a few of the others are confined to the basement of a private house. That night, Silly is taken for interrogation for the first time. In a ruined living room, she's made to sit in a creaky chair opposite a Russian officer who relaxes on the sofa with a large pile of files next to him and a clipboard on his knee. Two soldiers hold carbines fitted with bayonets standing behind the sofa. The officer speaks German. Now we'll return to the story in a moment, but I think there are a few interesting things that come to light here. First, the culpability of the Nazi regime itself for refusing to allow civilians to evacuate until obviously all was lost. And this was obviously a deliberate policy of placing civilians uh, in the way of the Red Army. In part, Hitler's idea, Hitler's kind of notions of Gottsdammerung, of if Germany was to go down, all Germans uh, would be sacrificed. And also um, the idea that there would be, um, uh, if evacuations happened, it would be a disincentive of men to fight. And if uh, women and children were at, at the front and civilians, that the, the German army would fight all the more determinedly. The other thing to note is the last point about the uh, interrogations uh, that happened whilst the forced march eastward was happening. This seems like a, a strange thing for uh, an officer uh, leading a uh, long line of civilian prisoners 
to do. But when you think about the culture from which Soviet officers had come from, one of uh, hyper-surveillance and scrutiny and interrogation, where even um, the seemingly the most irrelevant investigations um, were likely for the suspicious and paranoid uh, inner world of Soviet thinking to yield all sorts of uh, interesting details for which one could further incriminate an individual. It, it makes some kind of sense. Marcel Kruger goes on to write, I possess a copy of my grandmother's NKVD file, obtained from the Red Cross, which still keeps records from all World War II POWs. Silly's uh, file has four pages. Her details were first recorded on the 12th of February 1945, two days after she was taken. It gives the name of her parents and siblings, the location and size of the farm, 47 hectares, 12 cows, 6 horses, the fact she spoke Russian and Polish, her profession, non, working on my parents' farm, distinguishing features, non, uh, and has her signature at the bottom, a girlish squiggle translated into Cyrillic letters by one of her interrogators. Her address is Lengainen Estate, Lengainer, District Allenstein, and uh, Cecile Anna Babrash was 21 when she was taken. Siri was officially a prisoner of war, not one of those political prisoners taken by the Soviets later, after their occupation of East Germany, so there was no trial for her, no extortion uh, of a confession, as so, as so often happened later. In the Soviet zone of occupation, and later the German Democratic Republic, there were countless basements across East Berlin, or former Nazi concentration camps like Sachsenhausen, that were used as Soviet political prison camps until 1950, so-called silent camps where all contact with the outside world was punishable by death. No, my grandmother was taken too early in the war, and so she did not become a political prisoner, not that it would have made a difference at all. The Soviet officials uh, just take her details and make her sign the statement, and then she is taken back to the basement, and the next prisoner brought up to provide the raw bones of her life for the NKVD archive in Moscow. Not knowing what will happen to them, the women hunker down and tremble whenever the key turns in the lock. With the morning light, two soldiers walk into the basement and search their belongings. Cutlery, needles, scissors, candles and matches are all taken. Strangely, the soldiers also take any photos that they show that um, they find that show the women. One elderly soldier with a grey moustache says to Erika, At home I'm going to tell everyone you're my wife. The two soldiers then make a show of the watches they have taken. The elderly one has ten watches of all shapes and sizes around his right arm. The officer comes to the basement door and shouts, All out! Erika sighs relief. That's it, we're going home. But once outside they're disappointed. They are not allowed to go home, but are marched further east again. Hope vanishes, and Silly asks herself when this endless marching will stop. She's been gone from the farm for three days already, so when will they finally reach their destination so she can start working out, uh, working and then go home again? Most women are crying silently while they walk, but no one dares say a word. This time their march is a short one. After 30 minutes they stop in another part of town, in front of a church. Silly is elated, thinking they are going to be given a chance to rest and pray. Even though soldier, the soldiers have brought a few coats and some goats to a spot in front of the church where the goats are slaughtered. When she steps into the half-light inside the church, though, she can't believe her eyes. The church is filled with men and women, 
all in civilian clothing, sitting and lying on benches and on the dirty floor, some with bloody and dirty dressings, all companions of misfortune. The scene is eerily eerie and horrible enough on account of the ragged prisoners alone, but there's a fire burning too. The Russians have made a fire in the pulpit to warm themselves, and even the wooden boards with psalms for the Sunday service are being ripped from the walls and thrown into the pulpit, God's words being fed to the fire. In every corner there's a stove on which something is being cooked by Red Army men. Smoke and the smell of frying meat still fill the church. Russian soldiers are riding bikes up and down the aisles, laughing and shouting. The city has not cried all week, but now her right hand automatically makes the sign of the cross and then grasps the small silver crucifix she's wearing around her neck. She starts sobbing. Now, if this is a style of writing that you uh, you enjoy, and it really is a very gripping tale, really um, really worth exploring in, in depth and understanding within the um, the context of uh, the events of the time, and it helps these kinds of to have these kinds of narratives to really bring out that that deeper understanding of the chaos. Uh, and the fact that um, civilians on all sides uh, were the the chief victims of this uh, merciless merciless war on the Eastern Front. Um, if that's your kind of writing, always look out for the other um, title that I've uh, mentioned to, uh, to my good friends at IB Taurus, who in the issue of uh, the uh, Spirit of Transparency have sent me this book. I've um, sent me in the past. Um, Leningrad 1943 uh, by Alexander Wirth, um, which is his account of the, the siege of, of Leningrad, obviously, uh, as a, a Western journalist in the city. Now, there's a, a copy of Babushka's journey to give away. So um, if you head on over to the Explaining History Facebook page and uh, send us a message indicating your desire for a copy of this book and your postal address. First person I get an email from, uh, or a message on the Facebook page from, uh, I'll pass it on to the uh, publishers and they'll send one out to you uh, forthwith. Uh, Anyway, guys, thanks so much for listening and more stuff coming uh, later in the week. We've got a great biography of Lloyd George coming up too. I'm going to be talking a bit late in the week uh, about the 1944 um, Butler Education Act um, and the establishment of the comprehensive system in Great Britain. So uh, hold on to your hats for that little exciting update. Uh, Anyway, um, take care. Uh, Come and say hi on Facebook. It's great to have conversations with everybody, and I'll see you all soon. All the best. Bye-bye. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? 
Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.